Welcome to the Fresh RN Podcast. The information contained in this podcast is meant to supplement your existing knowledge and not replace it. Always refer to your state board of nursing, standards of care, and respective institutions' policies to guide your practice. All identifying patient details have been changed to protect their privacy and remain compliant with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. Thanks, nurses. Stay fresh. And I'm like in the corner dry heaving. Uh, <laughs> the gratification you get from going to go digging for that. Oh, wow. <laughs> just got like five tweets from that. See the co host looking at me. Um. <laughs> What's up, guys? Welcome to the Fresh RN Podcast. I am Katie Kleber. And I'm Melissa Stafford. And we have a guest here that we're so excited to have. We're, we're recording from Houston at um, NTI, the uh, American Association of Critical Care Nurses. They have a conference every year that is wonderful. Me and Melissa have each been three times. And we decided to take advantage of um, the attendance of a very... Uh, a uh, famous um, nurse, blogger, <laughs> podcaster that's here, Sean Dent. Yay! What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. And we're going to be chatting with Sean. He is, okay, can you give everybody just a short little bio uh, and um, your experience level and like that kind of stuff? So I'm a, a seasoned old nurse <laughs> of, I'd say, 13 plus years. Sad that I don't know the exact year number. <laughs> Uh, been a nurse for 13 years. Outside of three and a half months of my career, I have spent my entire career in the ICU. Wait, where were you for those three months? Oh my God, orthopedics. Okay, okay, just curious. No. I didn't know that you weren't in it the whole time. Okay. Yeah, so for three months I tried orthopedics and realized how great a mistake I was. Okay. Um, worked in IC- I've worked in every ICU you can think of. If there's an ICU out in the adult world, let me let me clarify that. Oh yeah, that's important. Oh yeah, any we're ICU, talking adult. <laughs> any ICU in the adult world I have worked in, and then about six or seven years ago, decided that I wanted to advance my career and went to NP school, graduated, and now I'm working on my fifth year as an acute care nurse practitioner for a level two. Um, trauma service that uh, we provide critical care services to all of the ICUs inside of the walls of the hospital and I care for pretty much every ICU patient you can think of that comes through the doors. Wonderful. So we wanted to leverage your expertise for our newbies here and talk about respiratory. Um, It's a huge, huge topic and and it's as you, especially, and we're going to mainly, I think, chat from an ICU perspective. But a lot of what we're going to say is very applicable to the floor and the ED. Um, but I wanted to start out with just some basic patho for from a respiratory standpoint. Um, what are some of the nailed down points from a gas exchange aspect that a new nurse needs to be aware of? I'm not going to offend anyone's education. Everybody has taken patho, everyone's taken AMP. Everybody understands the perfusion, diffusion of your lung with your arterioles, bronchi, bronchioles. We're not going to go into that. What I think most nurses forget about the airway is what happens between the outside and the back of your throat. Everything else beyond that, everyone is focused on. Oh my God! There, they have something caught in their trachea. Oh my God! There's a you know something you know they have an infiltrate. They have pulmonary edema, interstitial edema. All of things those are absolutely important. But from a basic nursing standpoint, you need to master what's going on from the outside to the back of the throat. And the most important part of all that is what can the patient do to assist themselves in their pulmonary toileting. And can you define pulmonary toileting real quick? Coughing and deep breathing. At its most basic level, can they take a deep breath? Can they cough? And for those of us in the ICU world, can they protect their airway? Mm -hmm. Are they able to stop anything other than air going down their trachea? Mm. And can they do that on purpose or by accident? Meaning that there are patients out there, and for those of my hosts here who are neuro nurses what what <laughs> there are there are many disease processes that affect your epiglottis the ability for your epiglottis to actually work and function appropriately things like 
quote-unquote micro-aspiration and um, paralysis, vocal cord partial paralysis, those things will affect your ability to quote-unquote protect your airway. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who has a neurological process, a stroke, or you know, is weak from debilitation in some way, shape, or form, their pulmonary toileting is going to be affected. And it's your job as a nurse, no matter what level, no matter what experience, and no matter where you work, to be able to master what goes from the outside to the back of their throat. Oh, I love that. <laughs> just got like five tweets from that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. No, I'm, just I'm like frantically scribbling notes. Guys. Um, so, great. I love that. that break down. Um, so let's talk oxygen delivery methods. Okay. I think that's something that there's, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of ways that we can give patients oxygen. Um, and I want to talk, I want to go kind of roughly through each one kind of, and um, what are some common mistakes with them? Or maybe just, some, let's start out with common mistakes with supplemental oxygen, and then we can talk delivery method. How about that? Okay. Um, at its most basic level, everybody knows and is comfortable with nasal cannula. That's you know, probably the first device we use. Someone who's having difficulty exchanging oxygen or is quote-unquote hypoxic or low SATs, we usually throw them on nasal cannula. And before we go into any of these devices, let's preface this with oxygen is a medication. Mm -hmm. It is toxic. So too much, too fast, or not enough, let's be honest. It'll kill your patient. So you need to take whatever you do to your patient seriously. And if it's something as what you call simple as putting nasal cannula on your patient, just remember you just gave him a medication. Mm -hmm. So you need to pay attention to what you just did. Nasal cannula goes in the nose. There's different forms of nasal cannula, different types of nasal cannula. You can have um, monitoring nasal cannula so that you're monitoring end-tidal CO2. We could really go horribly in depth. But at its most basic level, nasal cannula delivers up to six liters of oxygen, meaning that it's effective at six liters of oxygen. Anything beyond that, you're talking about flow rates and whether or not the amount of oxygen that you're blowing into their nose is actually getting into their airway. Six liters is about standard, and this is for a standard run-of-the-mill nasal cannula. I can see the co-host looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. No, I no, mean, no. I just want to say it's, it, it, it's very important to hear him say that oxygen can be toxic. And there's a lot of nurses out there that'll just throw somebody on two liters because it makes them feel good. Ah, they're just on two liters. Or they do that to everybody. Yeah. Everybody that comes from the ED so has two liters of nasal cannula. Like, like, why are they on that? Yeah. It's and an, and yeah. if they don't need it, don't let them wear it. And then the other side is, too, I think if you – have you guys ever had to wear a nasal cannula? Like yeah, just once for a very short period. I hated it. It sucked. I didn't really understand how drying that was to my nose. So humidity on said nasal cannula, especially the higher flow rates that you get, is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. But, oh, I hated that nasal cannula. And I'm kind of glad I had that experience. It was while I was still in nursing school. But it gave me an appreciation for how annoying <laughs> Yeah, and I think knowing that it's also hearing him say that um, – uh, don't give it if you don't need to, and so that also means if they're getting, they've had it and they don't need it anymore, to freaking take it off. Yes. Like looking to wean. So if you have this like person in the ICU that's on two, four liters of nasal cannula, sat in 100 percent, well, why don't we bump it down to two, and mm -hmm. then let's look at weaning it off. And and why are they getting transferred to the floor with a couple liters? At, if their sats are 100 percent, right? Like why we don't just want to coast; we want to progress the patient. So looking at, at as we talk about these devices, when can I wean down and take steps down? Because that's essential. Because you know, sending a patient home on oxygen, it's actually quite expensive. Oh, it's and it's and I've tried to facilitate it from mm -hmm. the floor when I worked on the floor. Trying to discharge a patient who's never had oxygen before mm -hmm. is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, but insurance. Hoops you have to jump through. I mean, if right. you have somebody on oxygen, it should be part of your plan of care for that day to work on getting it off. Right, mm -hmm. like, right. You don't just take a patient on, on nasal cannula and be like, all right, whatever. And that's what they on are. They're at the beginning, they're on at the end. Right. Sometimes they need that, and if they do, that's great, but progress them. Yeah, kind of, kind of like you look at weaning off a drip. Like, you want to wean off mm -hmm. the oxygen, and it's, it's a, like it's a medication. Think of that like a drip, like you want to get rid of. There's a titration order for oxygen. Sats 
for a reason. So <laughs> ding, ding, ding. it's not just there because it's a really cool, pretty protocol. Mm -hmm. um, it's there for patient care to optimize your patient's respiratory status and their pulmonary toilet. So I'm going to move on. So that's nasal cannula. Then you have what you can call high flow nasal cannula. And that can be anything from six liters up to and there's date, there's a bargaining debate on this one, but you could probably get up to 15. Um, but let's keep in mind, as Melissa pointed out, the comfort level here. So you're blowing 15 liters of oxygen through their nares. Um, Makes me want to, like, just, uh, yeah. So just stand, up, just stand outside the room and listen to that, how high mm. and how, how annoying that is, and then walk in, or better yet, the next time you decide to crank up someone's oxygen level like that and they're in their nasal cannula and they're on 6, 10, 12, 15, I would love for you to take it out of their nose or before you put it in their nose, just put it in your hand. Mm. How much is blowing into your hand? Mm -hmm. Or put it up to your face or for those of us who have hair. <laughs> Which is not Sean. Which is not I. <laughs> just, I guarantee you that amount of oxygen will blow in your face as if you were in a car. Mm -hmm. So keep it in mind. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Pay attention to what you're doing and why you're doing it. So, mm -hmm. and you said what is the lowest setting on the high flow? So high fl the the idea behind the high flow nasal cannula is that you're still utilizing the nares to deliver oxygen, and six liters wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know who in their infinite wisdom created the high flow nasal cannula because <laughs> I don't think it really does a good job. I think it's just a delaying device. Mm. So someone who really truly needs that much oxygen, they better have a chronic respiratory problem that we're addressing in a very aggressive manner mm -hmm. um, because there's something amiss between the oxygen delivery system somewhere in their body. Well, and I think it has, like, it's come in handy in my experience as far as if somebody's on a humidified oxygen mask mm -hmm. um, and they need to eat, but they can't go without their oxygen, mm -hmm. then I may use high flow to put on their nose while they're eating. But then when they're done eating, it's off and they're back on their mask. So Perfect example. Mm -hmm. That is a really good example. A so, so common mistake with just quickly with the nasal cannula is probably too high. Correct. And not humidified. Correct. Any other common mistakes with nasal cannula that you guys see? It's Other than on, it existing, it put on be, backwards. Put on. Oh yeah. It actually goes in their nose. Yeah, it like 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 yes, a like yeah. claws down into the nose. Have you seen the cannulas that are sitting in their mouth? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Or a nasal cannula on a mouth breather. <laughs> yeah. So um, so those are some like things to avoid. So make sure you're. Uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, so with nasal cannula to make sure that you're only putting it on when you need to, that you're at the appropriate rate and not too high. Um, and what was the third thing that I just said? Can't. Putting it on correctly. Putting it on correctly. So and then when you look at high flow, um, really looking at if you need it and mm -hmm. why you need it because something else is probably going on again making sure you're at the appropriate rate and you can't use I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong but I'm like 90% sure you can't use um, high flow without humidification that's just not an option right well, well you, you can, can. Yeah. <laughs> technically do it. yeah technically you can do it but once again as Melissa pointed out you want to talk about drying drying out the airways my eyes just water thinking about that I mean your, your patient's um, lips will crack they will bleed Mm -hmm. Immediately, and yeah. and it will mask a true assessment of your patient because one of the ways you assess your patient's fluid volume status is their mucous membranes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, mucous membranes are completely bone dry. Mm -hmm. Is it because of the thirteen liters of oxygen <laughs> going into their nose, mm -hmm. or are they truly dehydrated? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. That's a good point. Um, and then, so let's work, talk about the face mask mm -hmm. um, and that, and I put face tent too, but I think that's a little more specific to our, like, you know, neuro, neuro patients, so we probably don't need to go no, over that one, but, but you do, okay. Okay, so let's talk face mask, and let's, okay, let's say the patient, we're, we're, we're at 15 liters of high flow, or now what do we do? So you have a simple face mask, which there's no titration to it. It's basically just a nasal cannula, but it's a mask. 
So for for the mouth breathers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it usually can deliver about the same amount of oxygen. Sure, you could probably crank up the flow rate, but you're only going to get so much oxygen. Mm -hmm. The short answer to all of these devices is they only deliver a certain amount of percentage of oxygen. And we could go into the pathophysiology about it, but um, room air has 21% oxygen. And every time you give a liter of oxygen, depending on the delivery method, it increases it by 1% to 2%, sometimes 3 And you have to think about the delivery method and how your patient is accepting it. For instance, if I blow 15 liters of oxygen into someone's nose, but their mouth is open the whole time, am I truly giving them 15 liters of oxygen? Right. I am not. So that's why you put a face mask on to create a, a pseudo seal. Face simple. So rewinding back to now the simple face mask is just basically nasal cannula just for your face. And it looks like a BiPAP mask or it looks like a non-rebreather mask or a Benny mask. And all it is is just a mask that connects to the oxygen tubing. Um, and it's for the mouth breathers. And I, I guess it's a troubleshooting method for those of us who have been on 12 to 15 liters nasal cannula and the sats are not something that you're trusting. So you put them on a mask to see if maybe they truly are a mouth breather. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if they are a mouth breather and you put a mask on them, you'll have an immediate change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, It'll mm-hmm. go from you know low sats to adequate or 100%. So simply try a mask. <laughs> so, there you dun, go. Dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so if you have that mouth breather and you need to know but the, is there any other situation really where the simple mace? <laughs> the simple mace. Do you need a little more coffee? Insert coffee. So any other th- other than the, the mouth breather, is there any like consistent situation that you would utilize a simple face mask? Oh, that's probably the one I use the least, yeah. honestly. Yeah, simple face mask doesn't have any titration to it, so mm-hmm. it's, there's no advantage to it. Um, besides it being a mask when it comes to cannula versus mask. Okay. You're putting it on their face. Now, it also could be, um, and I'm thinking of, like, patient-specific issues, patient, patients that have had facial surgeries, maxofacial surgeries mm-hmm, that need mm-hmm. to have an open mouth, or someone who's had um, their jaw removed from cancer. Mm-hmm. You're going to mm-hmm. have to use a mask of some sort. And it's also not a sealed mask, meaning there's no definitive seal between the patient's face and the mask meaning it's going to move around you're not once again you're not delivering the exact amount of oxygen that you've titrated because there's not a complete seal Mm -hmm. so and that's acceptable when you're using just a simple face mask all right so let's progress so the next step is probably what i'd call a venny mask Um, a venny mask is basically a simple face mask with a dial that you can dial the titration of the oxygen and some venny masks are titrated by liters and some are titrated by percent of oxygen. Take your pick, doesn't matter how you want to process that information, but it's basically just delivering more oxygen to your patient and that mask, some I've seen you can seal, but most you can't. Most it's just, you know, you have a strap around the back of their head and it's just holding the mask in place. You're not creating a definitive seal. What I mean by seal is that no oxygen can escape between the borders of the mask and the patient's skin. Okay. So and and so for the new grad that's throwing somebody on a of any mask, they they hook it up to the wall, crank it all the way up from the wall, and then titrate at the mask. Correct. Correct. So. No, I was going to say the ones that we have at our hospital, it, the the dial itself tells you what you have to have the flow rate at on the wall. Got it. Mm-hmm. So if you if you want to have a forty percent venny mass, then you have the the flow rate at six liters. Mm-hmm. If you want to have a fifty percent venny mass, then you turn it up to eight liters. So how would the new grad know what percent? Meaning what percent to have that? Uh, so it's go low, start low, and go slow. There you go. For everything that you do. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I will caution everybody that outside of standard nasal cannula if you are upping your game Mm -hmm. in any way you better be making a call to Mm -hmm. respiratory therapy Mm -hmm. because they are the experts they are the specialists that are going to assist you and augment your therapy and you know if you're on the floor and you're having these increasing oxygen demands 
and you're getting you were on nasal cannula now you're on high flow now and now we're progressing in this order that we're going like that is like a respiratory or rapid response kind of a situation yeah Mm -hmm. progressing that is a change in clinical status yeah yeah you better be telling somebody yeah so you're not in your own little silo trying to figure this out by yourself this is this is um, a quickly it's a big deal when your yeah. patient requires high amounts of oxygen. Yes, yes. There's something underlying that so needs to be treated. So let's go back to basics. <laughs> when everybody is in nursing school, there's this thing called basic life support. Mm-hmm. BLS. Uh, right? Okay, so what are the what is the three letters that everybody has to learn when you want to assess your patient in an emergency? A, B, C. And what's A? <laughs> Airway. <laughs> so stick to your basics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and quite honestly, trust your gut. So with a face mask, hopefully you're able to know the, um, if you, if it's telling you how many liters, it's probably, you know, like, mm-hmm. cause with our other ones being, oh, one, one thing I wanted to ask, let's say um, you've got the O2 too low. Is that an issue, like for for these rebreathers? Um, well, so we're not. Mask. Yeah. So the go ahead, Melissa. No, I was just say you're talking about. So like, if I if if the mask tells me that, um, I I think I have the dial turned to fifty percent, but I don't have the flow rate at the right. Correct. What would happen? Yeah. Other than patient assessment and looking at your sats, you're not going to know, unless you're comfortable with the Venny mask. So caveat being is that a Venny mask is not something that we traditionally use anymore. It's once again just a stepping stone to either worsening clinical status or improving clinical status. Mm. And a venny mask is not something that you can just get out of your storage room. It's usually something you got to get from respiratory, mm-hmm. at least in my experience. You know, it's either you have nasal cannula, high flow nasal cannula, you have a simple face mask, or you have a non rebreather. And the non rebreather is there usually at the bedside or on the wall, at least in my experience. And now we're talking about ICU versus fuller nursing. So once again, if you're going from a nasal cannula to a high flow or anything above a nasal cannula, you better be recruiting help, especially mm-hmm. your respiratory therapist. If not, your nursing leaders, your mm-hmm. nursing management, your the, the seasoned nurses, so that you can get their input. Because once again, if you're needing to increase the oxygen delivery to your patient, you better be asking why. Good. Okay. So now let's let's go to CPAP BiPAP situation here which so I've had on the floor before we've we skipped one. Oh, did I What's the face tent so well we skipped two then so a face tent is just something that most people use post-operatively or they use them in post-surgery patients mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually used one a couple weeks ago on someone and it had everything to do with their clinical condition which I won't share hip 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 <laughs> but um, a face tent is basically just a face a simple face mask that sits underneath their chin mm-hmm. and it straps to the back of their head to, to hold it against their face and it I sometimes maybe Melissa will know this term it's sometimes called blow by I was gonna say the same thing it's sometimes <laughs> it's called like blow by oxygen um, it's utilized a lot in the PACU um, in recovery for patients who are waking up from anesthesia who can protect their airway who are awake who are alert who are coughing but they're just kind of groggy mm-hmm. and every once in a while their sats drop or they're laying flat because they can't sit up because of a surgery so they put them on some supplemental oxygen so that there's nothing invasive it's not covering their face to scare them and it's not in their nose to drop their muc- mucous membranes and I, I mean it's just something to augment them while they wake up from anesthesia so face 10 is not something that you're traditionally going to see yeah unless you're in a specialty area yeah and we've seen it in neuro with um specific like tumor removal and that kind of stuff or nasal surgery kind of thing mm-hmm. um yeah i don't think i've seen it in any other so um i i kind of feel like and i don't know if you were thinking the same thing but i want to talk about like the humidified face mask because um, mm-hmm. we talked about the simple face mask, the Vinny mask, even a rebreather mask. Those are all dry, dry oxygen delivery devices. If you have somebody who has a lot of secretions and you give them continued dry oxygen, they're going to wind up developing mucus plugs. So I cement. like cement, <laughs> and it's nasty, y'all. I had oh. it was. <laughs> I think I'm dry uh, heaving. Oh god! Like my Can nightmare. we just talk about how gross the word mucus plug is? <laughs> 
gross. I love it. Oh. I, it was so bad for me one time. I was in the ICU, and there's this guy. I was really trying very hard to keep him from getting intubated, and I was sec- I was very talk about aggressive nurse pulmonary toiling. I was gagging in the room, which I really. I, one of the rest were therapists. Walked by, and I'm like. Please, <gasps> Carrie, please save me. Please save me. And she came and she was laughing. And I'm like, I have to leave the room. Like, was, you know how every nurse has that thing, that's, that specific thing that really grosses them out? For me, it's sputum. Really? Yes. Sputum I is disgusting. I love sputum. I love sputum. I, like, I, get, I get like tingles when you, when you NT suction that's, someone. That is exactly and you, you have just, that. No. <laughs> I love that sound. I hate that. Like the, the uh. gratification you get from going to go digging for that. Yeah. Now, uh, keep in mind this is not comfortable for a patient anyway. No, 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 no. Not at all. No. And, and Nor is it comfortable for me. Yeah. You know, all other nurses have a very dark sense of humor, but oh, that noise that you can hear from the hallway. You can. And you can hear from not, the depths of your 80, soul. 80% of ICU nurses out there will be like, yes! Oh, oh, it's great when they sound better afterwards, but in the process, like Carrie was in there, she was sectioning, and she was like, oh, look, some more sea creatures. Let's get back to sea world. And I'm like, oh. And I'm like in the corner dry heaving, um, like, oh, I, I can't, I can't, like this, like, I will, you know how there's things like, I don't want to, like, little procedures. Like, I don't know why, I hate discontinuing. Yeah, you bargain. Like, I hate doing, I hate discontinuing art lines and I hate trait care. I will, I will bring you cookies tomorrow. You like like doing wounds? Oh, yeah. So then we would work great together. See, I love. I'll give you the wounds. Give me the nastiest, pussiest wound. I will do that. But, yeah, no way. <laughs> but do oh, that trait no. care for me, and we are. But I'll go get you cupcake from downstairs, oh, homie. Yeah. I don't want to touch that trait. <laughs> I hit, oh, oh. Yeah. okay. Anyway, we digress. So humidified oxygen delivery. Yeah, I think at any time that you can give humidified, you should, no matter what. Even on two liters nasal cane. Absolutely. Because you're bypassing your body's natural ability to humidify air. Remember, you have those hairs in your nose and in the back back of your throat. You have um, more moisture in the back of your throat. That is your body's natural way to humidify air. And when you blow air through that passageway, you're bypassing that. So you need to give the patient humidification if you're going to give them oxygen. So, And I think Melissa makes the greatest point of all that I still believe to this day that anything that we do to our patients, you should try and experience just once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I don't really want to experience putting a suture in someone's, whether we just took out their EVD or putting in an EVD. I'm good. This is good. Yeah, well, I'll help I don't you know. experience and de-sectioning if you want. Yeah. <gasps> Or what is that? A nasal trumpet? Oh, oh my god! Yeah. I don't know if y'all have seen. Oh, you love it. It's so funny. Love it. <laughs> like putting in a nasal trumpet, y'all, is so barbaric. And it, and can, oh wait, can you just can, true? Can you it's explain true. a nasal trumpet to so people? Like, for someone who has um, sleep apnea, who has a history of obstruction, mm-hmm. so it actually stops the tongue from dropping in the back of the throat. Mm-hmm. And for someone who may have a deviated septum or things like that. All it does is create a clear path. And for someone who is getting frequent NT suction. <laughs> so y'all, yeah, I'm gonna that. put a picture of a nasal trumpet in this show notes. <laughs> and that, like the first time I was in, cause I didn't use them until I was in the ICU setting. Mm-hmm. And then the first time like my preceptor Elizabeth pulled one out and I was like, Jesus, we're gonna put that in the patient's nose? <laughs> and then she she got a ton of lube oh, yeah, and I was like, I was horrified, like, oh. But yeah, the then patient it, doesn't enjoy that. But yeah, and it was, it was, I, I, but it helped, we had to do a bunch of suctioning and it made that significantly so it easier. it minimizes trauma. It does, uh, yeah, no matter how. somebody some serious nosebleeds yes. if you're constantly doing oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. patient's coagulopathic, you're in trouble. Yeah, so, oh yeah, I forgot about nasal trauma. Okay, what, I feel like I missed something else before CPAP, so, yeah, BiPAP. What did well, I miss? Non-rebreather. We just kind of skip right over oh, non-rebreather. Non-rebreather is probably the most important <laughs> of oh, all. Let's go there. Um, and the delivery, de- that that will deliver the most oxygen you can give a patient before you put them on a BiPAP, CPAP, or the ventilator. 
So anything above a non-rebreather is called non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's some form of, I'm pushing air into your lungs. I'm not just throwing oxygen into your nose or into your mouth. I'm pushing air mm -hmm. into your lungs. And a non-rebreather is the step is the only is the last step before that. Okay. And it delivers hopefully 100% pure oxygen at anything above 15 liters. Um, for those of you that know what the um, oxygen looks like on, on the wall, you're just basically gonna turn the dial up until the dial can't go anymore, and then keep turning until you hear that noise that is deafening. Mm -hmm. that, you turn the oxygen that high. And an on rebreather is, once again, it creates a pseudo seal between the patient and the, and the actual device. Hence non rebreather, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And the most important part, which Melissa is probably going to allude to, is that if you don't deliver the proper amount of oxygen, the non rebreather actually will not only give you the oxygen you want, it'll actually starve your patient of oxygen because you're basically suffocating them. So if you don't put the non-rebreather up appropriately. And the way you'll know is that there's this really cool bladder that's supposed to be full of oxygen and it's supposed to be full. And if that bladder or balloon or bag, or bag yeah. whatever you'd like to call it, if it doesn't have oxygen, if it's not full, meaning it looks like it's distended, then you're not giving, you're not, you have not turned up the oxygen high enough. So like, you know, on the plane is, even though the bag's not inflating, the air is flowing. <laughs> we need the bag yes. inflated. <laughs> and you can, and usually it's a, it's one of those aha moments. You, you, if you've never touched an armor breather before, and you can remember that that balloon, that bag, that bladder has to be open and full, the minute you turn the oxygen on and you turn it up to 15 liters and you can hear that deafening sound on the wall, but the bladder is still not, the balloon is still not full, the minute you turn it up, you'll see that bag start to fill up and you'll know immediately if you've given the proper amount of oxygen. This is before you even place it on the patient's face. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't want to do this while it's on the patient. So that's Look a non Turn it on, then put it on. Yeah. Yes. And just crank it up until basically the dial can't turn anymore. Mm -hmm. Just keep turning, 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 turning until you come to a hard stop. Mm -hmm. That's when you know you've given enough. And, and again, uh, and hopefully, especially if you've never done this before, you got a respiratory therapist oh. next to you, really. Because they're, I mean, you At think about. The way. Yeah. And you think about, you know, your nursing school and everything. So respiratory therapists have two years of school just with the respiratory system and devices, if not more, because you actually can get a bachelor's in that, um, in respiratory therapy. I don't know, that's not the actual name of it, but like you can get a bachelor's yeah. in that. And there's advanced certifications. And too. yeah, where so leverage their knowledge while you're messing with these devices because you can't afford to get the, utilizing these devices wrong. Like, you just can't afford to do that. So if you're, like, guessing, and if you're getting to the points when we're, these scenarios where we're talking about it, it is essential to have that person next to you that has been doing this and knows all things inside and out respiratory walking you through this. Yeah, you need to put your pride in your pocket. Yes. You need to utilize your resources. And um, one, of the cat, one of the things that all of my respiratory therapists um, have a problem with is that... Um, <laughs> Most nurses just call them RT instead of actually calling them by their name or mm. learning their names. Mm -hmm. you know, and that, oh, I love. Yeah, you got to learn their names and who they are. And yeah, you just gotta, Carrie. You just gotta yeah, be willing to learn from them because they can teach you a great deal. Mm -hmm. The only reason why I'm comfortable with respiratory the way I am is that when I was a new nurse in the ICU, I velcroed myself to a respiratory therapist. Oh my gosh! Right yeah. for the first two years, I worked in the ICU because the docs weren't the most teaching oriented kind of physicians but the respiratory therapist was so mm -hmm. all the advanced stuff that I know that I'm comfortable with started because the respiratory therapist taught me yeah and and you know like the respiratory therapist especially in the ICU setting they're they're there I mean I know they don't have two patients that they're taking care of just that day but they're that where they're located is where you are and if they're suctioning your patient doing a vent check doing whatever and you know utilize them while they're there um, it's another person on the healthcare team to build rapport with to um, learn their name to ask how they're doing and then um, you know show that their knowledge is valuable because whether or not you realize it, it is um, and they can so save your butt oh my goodness I yeah. oh my gosh 
They're one wonderful, yeah. wonderful resource to have. Yeah. Wonderful. As a as an advanced practice provider, I talk with my respiratory therapist um, every day, all day, throughout the day. Q five minutes. Yes. <laughs> like when I walk into the unit to to uh, assess the the floor, the first person I talk to is the charge nurse. Second person I find is respiratory therapy. Mm-hmm. And I talk about everything that's been going on overnight, and I ask, "What have you done so far, and what are we doing when mm-hmm. it comes to weaning parameters and what we're doing with our vented patients and patients that need um, oxygen therapy?" Mm-hmm. So, all right, I'll get off my RT soapbox. <laughs> all right, very pro RT. Um, BiPAP and CPAP are the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation (NIPVV). PPV. PPV. Jeez. <laughs> um, Sounds like a disease. They <laughs> you got PPV? Sorry. If you're using these two um, therapies, they better have a chronic problem or you better have involved your providers because mm-hmm. this is advanced. And you have to have some. So let's just talk about basic knowledge, CPAP versus BiPAP. It's a, it creates a seal, a seal between the patient and the mask, so air should not be escaping between the edges of the mask. That's the most important part. And, and that, the alarm is really annoying yeah, if it no, does. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's you know, you got to keep in mind for someone who, like me who has little facial hair and no beard, um, it's not a problem. But someone who has a beard, has a lot of facial hair, who has some sort of abnormality with their facial structures, CPAP and BiPAP are going to be quite challenging yep. because you have to have that seal. And if they have an NG tube or a feeding tube in, I mean, you can't, you won't be able to get a perfect seal, no. but you need to know what is adequate and what is not. You know what? Oh, I saw, um, you know, online, um, a respiratory therapist had posted a thing about um, trying to get a seal on a guy with a beard. You know what they did? They put um, Tegaderm over the beard. I mean, the guy's out of it. But, and it was, you know, a pretty hairy one so that they could get a seal on top of it, hmm. which I thought was a really interesting right, way to clippers. do that. You get clippers. We have yeah. clippers wow. on. Yeah, if you get to that point. Forget it. I'm, I'm sorry. You're probably going to be upset that I trimmed your beard, but I you need oxygen? to save your life. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, and the other thing is it's not always about making the mask tighter because you can cause pressure sores. And I have seen pressure sores from putting on a CPAP or BiPAP mask too tight. I mean, especially across the bridge of the nose. That's probably, oh, yeah, 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 but, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> the masks generally have a pillow of air around them for a reason, and it's mm-hmm. to offer cushion. Yeah. You know, they're rubbery so that they're supposed to offer that seal, but you can't just go in there and just be pulling pulling strings and making it as tight as possible. That's just bad. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I digress, yeah. So no. the only difference between CPAP and BiPAP, and this is just basic of basic, is that CPAP is continuous, so continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP. And BiPAP is, there's bi-levels to it, bi-level positive airway pressure. CPAP means that there's a certain amount of pressure that's given no matter how the patient, whatever the patient's doing. So five going in, five going out, 10 going in, 10 going out, doesn't matter. There's always the same amount of pressure no matter what the patient is doing or not doing. With BiPAP, you can actually titrate what goes in and what goes out. So if someone can breathe in 10, but they only need five going out, and that is very titratable and has everything to do with their pathophysiology and their clinical process, which we will not go into because that could be a whole other episode. But at its basic level, CPAP and BiPAP. CPAP is continuous, which is what usually people go home on who have obstructive sleep apnea. And you have the, the, the nasal mask versus the facial masks. Once again, you can look that up online, pretty self-explanatory. And all it's doing is keeping their airway open. Mm-hmm. I have I have a really good, I didn't write it, but I, I found one of a really good de- differentiation blog post about CPAP versus BiPAP. So I will put that in the show notes so you guys can check that out. Yeah, so don't bog, don't bog your mind down on CPAP, BiPAP. What you need to understand between those two things is that now we are wanting to deliver higher levels of oxygen saturation. So remember the nasal cannula, simple face mask, all the face masks up to CPAP and BiPAP, there's no seal. So even though I'm giving 15 liters, 18 liters at 100% FiO2, I'm probably only actually giving them 10 because there's air escaping out of their mouth. There's air escaping around the seal for one reason or another. Whereas with CPAP and BiPAP, I can be fairly confident, 
fairly mm-hmm. confident that what I have set is what they are getting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the big difference. CPAP and BiPAP, your red flags better have gone off because they either have to have a chronic respiratory condition of some sort, smoke or COPD, let's not go into the details, or they had a respiratory problem to start with that is either gotten better or worse. Mm-hmm. And then so, let's get to the big kahuna. CPAP and BiPAP are jokingly, in my world, called intubation delay devices. Uh, Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at that if you're progressing to that point. So a CPAP and a BiPAP, and if we're going to be honest here, anything above a high-flow nasal cannula is a bridge. Mm -hmm. It is a bridge therapy to figure out how to fix the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. All it's doing is making you feel better about the numbers on the monitor. (laughs) It's not fixing the problem. Mm -hmm. I can give my patient 20 liters high-flow nasal cannula, or I can throw them on a non-rebreather, I can throw them on a simple face mask, and whoa, stats went from 92 to 99. (laughs) Success! But it's not going to stay that way. It's not sustainable. It is bridge therapy so that you can figure out what to do to fix the underlying problem. Do they have a pneumonia? Are they fluid overloaded? Mm-hmm. Are they having a heart attack? Mm-hmm. The list is endless. You're going to have time to go fix the underlying problem. And that could be something as simple as making a phone call to your provider, talking to your charge nurse. It's so that you can bridge them to wherever they need to go or whatever they need to get. So if none of those bridges work, the last ditch effort or the last option that we have in our clinical practice is um, invasive which is mechanical ventilation, which is intubation, which is invasive positive pressure ventilation. So instead of non-invasive, it's invasive. And it is a direct line of communication between the patient and the oxygen delivery system. So there is a plastic tube in their trachea. And that is when you have complete control. You have 100% complete control over what is delivered to the patient. So there's no bartering there's no questions as to if i'm giving 50 percent fio2 is the patient really getting 50 percent fio2 if they are intubated on a mechanical ventilator or they at least have an endotracheal tube you are 100 percent giving them that 50 percent and i don't know how in depth you want to go with mechanical ventilation but because you can go we can go really in depth but i don't i think that could be its own episode really um maybe just a couple common mistakes the new grad like um i've seen you know learning vents is very overwhelming okay um that's another time to really utilize that respiratory therapist but i've seen like okay the vent goes off respiratory is nowhere near um the new grad's just hitting um a a supplemental o2 yeah and and it's like wait a minute 100 o2 don't yeah Yeah. so if you're hitting that more than once or twice you better be calling somebody Mm -hmm. um some of the, I guess, let's just talk about some kind of basic things is that think about what's going. So start from the machine and work your way to the patient. If the machine is alarming or if the monitor is alarming, look at the machine. Is there something on the machine that doesn't look right? And you as the nurse may not know that because you're new, so you grab the respiratory therapist, you grab a seasoned veteran. Because it sounds crazy, but some most of the ventilators out there are touchscreen. Mm-hmm. And... This sounds really simple, but it's important that if something is obstructing the screen or touching the screen, the alarm's gonna keep going off, and you're actually going, the, the mechanical ventilator will stop delivering oxygen because they the machine feels something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So it could be something as simple as there's tubing touching the screen. Mm-hmm. So And sometimes start? it's always that, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you know, this thing's the, not connected to what it needs to kiss, be. The KISS principle. Keep, keep, it, keep it simple, stupid. Don't. Dwight. The thermometer, the, keep, the heater, mm-hmm. the temperature probe pops out of the hole, then you have a leak in the system, and yeah. it's alarming. So, and so looking at the circuit from the machine to the patient, is there a kink somewhere? Mm-hmm. Is there a kink in the tubing circuit? Is there a kink in the ET tube? Did it pop off? Did it pop off? Is there a disconnection somewhere? Mm-hmm. And then is the patient coughing? Do you need to suction them? Do you need to suction inline suction in the ET tube? Or do you need to just, you know, clean out their mouth and, and use a yank hour? And make that... <laughs> so if all those things don't work and you've given the supplemental oxygen, you have better called somebody by that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's about as basic as I would get. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's good with the, the vent. Um, yeah, so one of the things is if you're, if you're getting an alarm, don't just hit silence. 
like an IV pump. And then, and no, it's like, you really got to see why is this alarming? And there is that option. And you'll see that the provide O2 breaths, I think is what is the button usually says. It's 100% option. So you give 100% oxygen for two minutes. Yeah. And so it's like, you you can't just, oh, it's alarming. I'm going to hit that. Like we got to investigate the cause of the alarm before we think about fixing it. We said at the beginning of the episode, oxygen is a medication. It is toxic. So you keep bolusing them with 100% FiO2, it's kind of like bolusing them with a vasopressor. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that, and that makes me need, shudder. You need to figure out why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just like blindly do that until mm-hmm. alarms go away. We really got to be um, diligent in figuring out the cause. Can we Can we take just a minute to talk about the fact that the, the SAT monitor is not the and I'll do all to respiratory. Yes, great I think, yeah, I want to go into a segue <laughs> of the Sorry. SAT monitor. I think because we get so used to that being live and die by that O2 SAT, mm-hmm. when there's so much other things that can tell you about the respiratory status of the patient and, and, and more reliable. And so I want to talk um, respiratory, um, yeah, like we're not talking about not living and dying by that number. And then how do we know that number is accurate? And that kind of stuff. I would, I would probably view everything in respiratory the same way I would view all of your other things when you are assessing your patient. Check the patient first. Forget about the monitors. Forget about the equipment because there's always a malfunction. There's always a problem with monitors. Everybody has different views of the monitors, but at the end of the day, the monitor is not perfect. What you need to, you need to re- rely on your assessment skills. Okay. Um, Quickly, I would look at the patient and their work of breathing. If we're going to talk about anything when it comes to respiratory assessment, is how does the patient look? Are they in distress or are they completely comatose? I always joked, and it's something that I've, I've done online before, is that we are masters in the middle. We love to master the middle. Our patients need to be in the middle. Patients cannot be at the extreme. We don't like when a patient is completely comatose. We don't like when a patient is so irate and agitated that we can't keep them in the bed. If you're at either one of those extremes, you better figure out why. Maybe you know why for underlying causes, but we're talking about respiratory. If they're breathing 50 a minute, you better be doing something to intervene. And if they're breathing five a minute, you better be doing something to intervene. Don't treat a number. Don't treat a monitor scale. Don't treat an ABG. Don't treat anything that is printed off treat the patient. <laughs> and that includes... Pulling their covers down and looking and, and seeing how hard they're working to breathing, to working to re- using section muscles. Are they? Are you actually counting respiratory rate and not just looking at the number on the screen? Like you know, like because you know the the because that's not always accurate. And are you actually looking at the patient and counting how many times a minute that they are breathing and not just writing eighteen? And, and, <laughs> and I don't want to. I know that we're just, we're pressed on time, and I know that there's so many other things we talk about. I don't know, and this is my fault that I don't remember, but in basic nursing school, did we go over the oxyhemoglobin curve? Do you remember that in basic nursing school? Oh, I if don't. If you don't, that's okay. I, I don't. Because, so then I would look that up, and that has everything to do with PaO2, SaO2 versus SpO2. Mm-hmm. And if you take home anything from this episode, is two things. Work of breathing, what do they look like? and that your SATs are the last thing to go. Mm-hmm. So if you are treating a low SAT, you are behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm. And that's the way you should treat your patient. It's kind of like how we've talked about in neuro, if you're just waiting for pupillary changes, you're waiting too long. Yes. There's, there's other things, other clues in the assessment that should um, let you know before that number or before, you know, before their pupils go, before that assessment thing changes, before that O2 sat changes. So, yeah, it's important to be diligent and looking at all of the pieces of the puzzle and not just that blue number on the screen. Yeah, treat the patient first and then troubleshoot your equipment. Mm-hmm. 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 So I was going to ask you to step on your respiratory soapbox, but it sounds like Kinda you are already, already, already there. Did. Is there anything else? So, so I'd like to end to say, you know, you've got all the new grads in the United States right in front of you, and you're you're stepping on a soapbox in front of them, what do you want them to know from a respiratory standpoint? But I do, in addition to what you just said. Rely on your physical assessment skills and your basic nursing knowledge. There isn't a piece of equipment or new technology out there that's going to trump your gut and your assessment skills. Because if you feel in your gut that something is wrong, act on it. 
the worst thing that happens is that you were wrong and the patient's fine. Right. That's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario, you just save their life. So literally save somebody's life. So rely on your physical assessment skills. Something as simple as sitting them up in bed will improve someone's SATs by almost 10%. Mm -hmm. If you just sit them up and lower their diaphragm and have them to deep breathe and cough. Deep breathing and coughing, pulmonary toileting actually matter. Incentive spirometry. (laughs) You cannot, you don't just leave that order on your order thing. That is so important. Incentive spirometry is not an inconvenience. It's actually exercise for your lungs. Yes, it's so, so important. And having those patients, like, actually educating them on it and not just sitting it on the bedside table, telling them how to use it. you got to use this 10 times an hour. You're watching TV. Yeah. You need to do that every time there's a commercial three or four times and making sure that they're doing that. And that's and part of your job as a nurse is being diligent in that compliance. As an APP, I support that every single day. I always ask my staff and I always ask my patients, how many times have you done that? Mm-hmm. And every time you walk into the room to do something, even if you're going to give them a drink of water or a new pill, hey, show them what you're doing on the incentive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as doing that too much. Yeah, and it, it almost reminds me as hand hygiene, right? Like it's something that you need to do very consistently and very diligently um, to avoid those major complications because it seems like something that's so small, but you can make it. Make no make bones or about things. it. It's hard for patients, yeah. mm-hmm. but that's your job. Mm-hmm. You're advocating for them. And sometimes you're going to be the bad guy or bad girl because you're putting them through something that hurts because it's going to make them better. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the most loving and caring thing we can do is tell someone no. Mm-hmm. And tell them, or, or make them do something they don't want to do, mm-hmm. and that, and and just because it doesn't feel good doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. You sometimes you got to do the thing that doesn't you don't want to do. I actually love being the bad guy. <laughs> you can blame it on me. I'll kick everybody out. Blame it on I've me. I've actually done that many a times. Yeah. When the new grads and the new nurses are like, well, they're not going to like that. I'm like, you can blame it on me. Yeah. Just oh. tell them the nurse practitioner made me do it. Yeah, I have exactly. no problem with that. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Sean. We appreciate thank you for inviting me. Your this knowledge. Is fun. <laughs> yeah, this episode could have been like four hours long, I swear. Um, so, thank you guys so much for listening. I'm going to have show notes where I'll have a link to that blog post. I'll have a link so you can check out Sean's website, his social media handles, his podcast. He's also a podcaster, so he's got what three? Three podcasts? <laughs> is that where we're at? Four? Somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> There's just search Sean Sean Dent on iTunes. (laughs) Um, So thank you guys for listening and stay fresh. Damn crowd better hit the floor. All the other fellas better run for the door. Stop, drop, and roll with me. I got the heat that'll.